Well, they're finding their places. Uh, I'd like you to find your place, too, in Matthew chapter 27, verse number 46. It is a communion Sunday, so we pull away from our normal uh, events on sermons and move on to uh, focus on Christ, as already mentioned today. And uh, we have been working through a series. I, I like doing series with just about everything, and this one takes longer because I could only do five, maybe four of these a year, and uh, so it can stretch out quite a ways. Uh, we are studying the seven statements of Christ on the cross. Seven statements of Christ on the cross, and, and what I, I want to just emphasize is our title is in the bulletin. It's one Savior, it's one cross, but seven statements that changed lives. And uh, these are significant things we look at here today. So Matthew 27, Matthew 27 is where we will be focusing, especially here this morning, in verse number 46. But I'm going to start a little bit sooner than that to start reading to you. Verse 33, if you back up just a little bit. Matthew 27, 33, and when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments and among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is a king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the, all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on the reed and gave him to drink. And the rest of them said, Let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. <laughs> Heavenly Father, help us today as we spend this time focusing on a phrase of our Savior on the cross. It is something that is very, it's very solemn, very humbling to realize why he said such a thing. And I pray, Lord, that you will tune our hearts to this passage, to your word, 
to that cross and the events that took place there, but most of all to our Savior who died in our place. So that as we remember him, as we partake of the communion service, our hearts will be prepared. Thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do with our time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this is actually this phrase in verse 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? comes from an Old Testament passage. It's in Psalm 22. And the psalm begins for the choir director upon Jeleth Hashachar. And if you can say that better, that's fine. But you're not preaching and I am. So I'm going to make it up however I want it to sound. A psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day and you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. Those are the first three verses that we find in Psalm 22. And it wasn't really that long ago we were in Psalm 22 as we did our last series of studying through uh, for Communion Sundays. And so some of the things you might hear this morning might remind you, if you remember, it was way back in June of 2021 when we were in this passage and we dealt with the same phrase. So I'm going to repeat some of those things on purpose because, number one, I think we need to be reminded. What did Jesus mean when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The seven statements of Jesus on the cross Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son. And son, behold your mother. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst. It is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Not many things said. But that's understandable. He was being crucified. It's interesting, as John has recorded some of these, this information of the cross, he actually gives more dialogue than any of the other writers do on what Christ said on the cross, including Mary and John and the understanding that this is your son and this is your mother. Um, the words, I thirst, the words, it is finished. John records that for us. Uh, Luke just records three short little statements. He spends a lot of time telling the environment of, and the event of the crucifixion. But Ju uh, Luke says, Father, forgive them. And the phrase, today you will be with me in paradise. And the final phrase, into your hand I commit my spirit. It's interesting that Matthew and Mark, and I, I just love Matthew's gospel, one of my favorites to go through. But uh, Matthew and Mark are very quiet about the statements of Jesus from the cross. Uh, both of them do record, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They also state that Jesus cried out in a loud voice, but they don't say what he said, just the fact that he did. Yet, if I take all seven of those statements and try to work through them, which might depict the fullest expression of Jesus' suffering on the cross, it might be the one we're looking at here today. Why have you forsaken me? 
we know several things about this cross. Number one, that Jesus endured extreme physical suffering. Extreme physical suffering. It killed him. His body was broken. His blood was poured forth. He was scourged. He was beaten. He was struck with the fists. He had a crown of thorns smashed onto his head. He had not slept the day before. There was no drink but a bitter wine, probably more like vinegar. The scripture says he was marred beyond recognition. He had nails in his hands and his feet. And I'm going to suggest something, because it doesn't say this, but I don't believe they were sanitized first. They might have even been used once or twice before. He suffocated. He had heart failure. All of his bones were out of joint. He had no strength. His tongue dried up in his mouth. Those are some of the descriptions of his physical suffering. We also know he had extreme emotional suffering on that cross as well. He was betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter, abandoned by his disciples, mocked at his trial, denied, I mean questioned as to his person and as to his relationship with God, his father. He was lied about. He was treated unjustly. He was bullied by the soldiers. He was blasphemed and reviled by the religious leaders. He was traded for Barabbas. He was crucified with thieves. He was publicly shamed on a cross. He was mocked while on that cross by thieves and those who stood below him. There was probably many other emotional experiences in all that. We're just given glimpses of this, and, and whatever it was, it, it was extreme there too. We know that he also endured extreme spiritual suffering. Spiritual suffering. And, and I do approach this a little more cautiously because, you know, we read in Scripture about anytime you go near the Holy of Holies, I mean, that's a very private place. You don't go in that place. Uh, uh, only the high priest could go once a year, and, and yet, when I talk about his spiritual suffering, I'm aware of something so very clearly. I wasn't there to pound the nails, and I wasn't there to mock his name, but it was my sin that put him on that cross. It was my sin. It was my shame that went with it. The disappointment, the defeat, the fear of discovery, the pain of the penalty, the reflection that sin puts on one's pride, the hopelessness of bad habits, the destruction of all that is good. Sin, you know, is a chain. Among other things, it's a chain. And it's a chain that binds. And its avenue is death, and its nail seals the coffin of the soul. It is a terrible thing. It's a horrible thing. And I think of this, that even the high priest, when he was dealing with the Day of Atonement and carrying in that sacrifice into the Holy of Holies, Scripture says, but he didn't come without dealing with his own sin first. He had to. This is what strikes me most of all about the cross that we talk about today and the Savior who died upon it. 
in view of the suffering of Christ there, just being mindful that it was my guilt, my sin, my blame. The old gospel song I like to sing from time to time is, I should have been crucified. I should have suffered and died. I should have hung on that cross in disgrace. But Jesus, God's son, took my place. That, to me, makes me walk more slowly toward the cross, more humbly before this cross, to look upon it and realize that what was dealt there was my sin. Jesus hung on that cross, and he didn't mask it. He, he didn't cover this up. He didn't leave it unknown. It was not unsaid. Scripture tells us that we've been called for a purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, and what are those steps? He committed no sin. It says that, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sin, my sin, your sin, in his own body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. These are precious words. We have them recorded in Scripture, and, and there's nothing hidden here. John the Baptist yelled it out so loudly when Jesus walked by, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. If a cross was set up before you right now, how would you approach it? How would you approach it? How would you feel walking directly up to it? The phrase that we look at here today, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is perhaps one of the most painful expressions that Jesus could say concerning his death for you and me. What that meant. What it meant to take our sins upon himself. Keep your bookmark here and just for a minute go back to Psalm 22, would you please? I want to highlight a couple of things here just to Help us understand a little better. Why this psalm, this particular psalm, said what it said and how it applies to what Jesus experienced. Psalm 22 starts in verse number 1. And you probably have here in your text, uh, some do and, and maybe not all, but uh, it talks about how it's designed for the choir director. It's upon the Ajelith, uh Hashahar. And I stop with that and I think that's an interesting phrase. You gotta look that one up, don't you? Because we don't know what that is. <laughs> what what is that? Well, first of all, the word ajaleth is the word for a doe. A doe. Deer. The word hashahar means morning. Like good morning. Like the dawn. Some say it's the tune. It's a tune of a doe in the morning. But more likely, it is not a happy sound because the doe was looking for the morning for relief. The doe was being hunted. The doe was being hunted. 
So many of David's psalms in the 20s and 30s of the psalms and even right into the 40s uh, expressed his need to trust the Lord, um, to run to him, to find his shelter and his protection in the midst of very difficult circumstances. Because I think that many of these psalms are written while David was on the run, when Saul was chasing him to take his life. And David's expressions here were pretty strong. He was an innocent man. And yet he was hunted down for execution. And the beautiful song we love to sing from Psalm 42 is, uh, is, is, As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for thee. And we say, that's such a pretty song. But what it's talking about is a deer that can't get its breath. It's been chased and chased and chased, and it's so thirsty, and it needs the Lord, or it needs its help, it needs its protection. And David says, as that deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. I need you. I need you now. That's a picture behind some of these things. And the psalmist is talking about what it's like to be forsaken to be forsaken, when you're surrounded by your enemies all about you, uh, the tremendous suffering and the, the desperate struggle. He's dealing with death, and he's, yet he's pleading with God to deliver him from such a horrible end. It's about an execution. Psalm 22 is about an execution, not an illness. It's an execution, and it's so much more appropriate to what Jesus experienced than what David did. David could say these things in a poetic way, but Jesus is the one who fulfilled them perfectly. All that was said in this literally happened in the life of Jesus Christ and his suffering at his enemy's hands. These are real things that he endured, and it's just interesting that the feature of this psalm, Psalm 22, it does not include one word of confession of sin. It doesn't say one curse against enemies. Uh, it's just primarily the account of a righteous man being put to death by wicked men. That's the psalm. How appropriate that Jesus says that on the cross. Now, when we go back to our little phrase, this psalm... You can look at it, Psalm 1, uh, 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That sounds so much like a complaint, doesn't it? Why have you left me? Why? Why? You have anybody in your life that asks that question, why, a lot? If you've got anybody who's about five years old to about 15, that was a big word in our house. Why, 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 why? And we say, oh. Why? Is that a complaint? Uh, is that suggesting that God has done something wrong? That Jesus would quote this? Why have you forsaken me? Here's a fact. God is not obliged to answer the plea of any sinful man. If David's shouting this out, if we're shouting this out, does God have to respond to our whys? If he does, it's sheer mercy. But my God, David wrote, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. 
You left. You've forsaken me. You abandoned me. It seems like at the moment when it was needed the most, you abandoned me. There's a lot of emotion in here. I think somewhat, as David might have recorded it, there was some sort of concern as to, it's hard to believe this, God, because you have rescued me over and over and over again. The record in Scripture of how God rescued his own. Go through the Old Testament. Now, they deserved most of the trouble they were in. But how many times did God rescue them out of their trouble? Rescue them, rescue them, rescue them. There's a track record here, and it's almost as if the psalmist David is saying, now I'm in my worst situation I've ever, ever faced, and there's no response. I'm going to cry it out again, but there's no response. He cries out louder. No response. No response. I cry by day. There's no answer. I cry by night. There's no answer. So my situation is just like this, God. I'm right here in trouble, and my help is a thousand miles away. You forsake me. You forsook me. You abandoned me when I cried for help. Now, I can sense this because there are times when maybe you've even experienced where you felt like the, the sky was hard and your prayers weren't getting through. You're struggling for a need where you have need for help and it's as if God is resistant to it. You know, here at this church, we've prayed an awful lot about an awful lot of things and we've seen a lot of answers, haven't we? The Lord has been so good to us, so gracious in his answers over and over. But you know, there are prayers that he hasn't answered. And with those, we trust. We just carry on and say that, well, uh, he's got a plan. We just don't know what it is. I don't think our first conclusion is that, boy, he must have made a mistake. We don't think that. Jesus himself cries out these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't say, you're far from my deliverance, as Psalm 22 has it. He didn't say, I cry to you by day and you do not answer. He did not say, I cry to you by night and you do not give me rest. Did Jesus ask? his father to rescue him on that cross? No. It was the crowds that kept encouraging him to come down from the cross, to turn to his father, to turn to her, even they thought Elijah, and get some help. Jesus never asked for deliverance from the cross, did he? No. And I want to ask you this. If Jesus had asked for deliverance, from the cross, do you think his prayer would have been answered? Every single other prayer he prayed was answered. There's a record of that. Even when he stood at the tomb of Lazarus, you recall, in John chapter 11, he said to his father out loud in front of everybody, he says, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. <laughs> you always hear me. 
Jesus and the Father are one. We teach that in our theology. We understand this. His testimony is clear that the Father always answers his prayer because he came to fulfill the will of his Father. True? This is what we know as the fact. And when he went to the cross, the scripture says, especially Isaiah, and Peter does as well, he went as a lamb that was silent before his shearers. He never asked to be delivered. He never asked to be rescued. He did not plead with his father to come and save him from the cross. So let's thought, think through this just for a minute. Did Jesus know why he was on the cross? Yeah, okay, elementary stuff, right? But that's okay, we got to start somewhere. Yes, he did. He knew he had come to pay that price. He knew why he was dying. Did he know how terrible sin was? Yeah, he's a holy God. <laughs> he can't stand the presence of it. He said in Psalm 22, the psalmist did, Yet you are holy. You are enthroned above the praises of Israel. This word yet or but stands out in a rather interesting way when it says he's crying out for help and the psalmist is crying out for help and yet God is holy at the same time. It might be an interesting contrast that on one side God does not answer and yet God is holy. And you say, how do those two go together? How would he abandon his own and yet be shown to be the God who's there for us. And yet, how is God holy and suffering is due to sin and, and what Christ did on the cross there? We, we many times emphasize in the experience of Christ that it might have been at this point when all the sins of the world were placed upon Jesus Christ on that cross. At this point, the Father turned his face away. At this point, Jesus experienced something he had never experienced before. And most of us might think pretty quickly, well, yeah, he's taking on sin and he never knew sin. He never knew sin. But I want to add one little element to it that I think is even uh, more pronounced on top of that, if you can get more pronounced than that. I, I do think this is a little beyond even my thinking of how to put this into words, but this is what I'll try. Could it be that God's abandonment that Jesus expresses here was in keeping with the fact that Jesus did all this on the cross on his own? Let me try to explain. If he's here to do his Father's will, and he always does his Father's will, he was sent by his Father's will. He came to do what his Father gave him to do. And when he's asked, by whose authority do you do these things? Uh, he says, I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And he says in John 8, 28, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing of my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And He said in John 8:42, "If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceed forth and come from God, and I have not even come on my own initiative, but He sent me." 
I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father who sent me gives me what I say. All the way through here, Jesus goes and emphasizes, I came to this cross according to my Father's will, my Father's direction. And he even went and said in John 10, verse 18, No one can take my life away from me. Here I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up. And this commandment I received from my Father. Let me suggest something in this thinking. Rather than assume that Jesus was in the dark about his Father's abandonment, why? Maybe even more that the idea that the sin Jesus bore the Father could not face, that could be there too. But something else in this is this is the first time, the first time that I could mark in the whole history of the life of Christ that Jesus did something on his own. Everything else, he was totally dependent on his father. His father. He prayed to his father. He obeyed his father. He fulfilled his father's word. He went to the cross because his father led him there, told him to do that. He did that. And yet, who accomplished the death? Who died? He did. He finished it himself. How else could it be said that we have redemption in his name? How else could it be said that we have salvation in his name? We have forgiveness in his name. Was not God pleased to give glory to his son by first giving the act of death to his son as well? It sounds rather huge, but Jesus is alone at this moment. He's alone. In creation, he and his father work together. In history, we have it recorded. Him and his father, him and his father, him and his father, him and his father. Here his father abandoned him to do the work that he was told to do. What an appropriate psalm to quote. I don't think Jesus had trouble with the why. Why have you... I think those words are human words. That's our words. <laughs> why would you abandon me at this time? I, I think the greater mystery of the why pertaining to God is, why did he create this world in the first place? Why, why did God create a man knowing that that man would sin? Why would God create a man and a world that would reject him? Why would God send his son to redeem this place and redeem these people? Why would he even do that? Why would he love us while we were yet sinners? Why would he want to save any of us? Why did he plan and prepare for us to spend eternity with him? Why this love? Why this mercy? Why the cross? Why did he leave his son there and let him go alone? For you? For me? 
J.C. Ryle writes this. There is a deep mystery in these words, which no mortal man can fathom. No doubt they were not wrung from our Lord by mere bodily pain. Such an expression is utterly unsatisfactory and dishonorable to our blessed Savior. They were meant to express the real pressure on his soul of the enormous burden of a world's sin. They were meant to show how truly and literally he was our substitute, was made sin and a curse for us, and endured God's righteous anger against a world's sin in his own person. At that awful moment, the iniquity of us all was laid upon him to the uttermost. It pleased the Lord to bruise him and to put him to grief. He bore our sins. He carried our transgression. Heavy must have been that burden. Real and literal must have been our Lord's substitution for us when he, the eternal Son of God, could speak of himself for, as for a time forsaken. Let the expression sink down into our hearts and not be forgotten. We can have no stronger proof of the sinfulness of sin or the vicarious nature of Christ's suffering than his cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It is a cry that should stir us to hate sin and to encourage us to trust Christ. Wow. When we come to our communion services, we remember. That's what we're told to do, right? Remember. Remember that his body was broken for us. Remember that his blood was spilt for us. Remember that we are the ones who deserve to die. We are the ones who has the penalty for sin. We are the sinful ones. But he is merciful. He took our place. And for the first time in his existence... He was left alone by his father. Has he taken your place? Do you know him as your savior? We can use the words, Jesus Christ as a savior. A savior, yes, he's always that. But is he my savior? Has that become personal to you, to me? He died for your sins personally, your sins and mine. Is he your savior? Did he take your place? When we come to this communion service, this is, this is not going to save you. Only Christ can save you. This is a reminder for you and I as believers in Christ when we take of this bread to remember Jesus died for me. When we take of this drink, remember Jesus died for me. I often wonder, why do we need the reminder? <laughs> That's just who we are. He knows us too well. We need the reminder, don't we? We need the reminder of what it was that Jesus endured on our behalf. What it is that he endured that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So I encourage you, as we're about to take of our communion service today, I encourage you to take that moment, we always do, and reflect upon the fact that it's because of our sin Jesus died. But also, don't just stop there. Follow through with, thank you, Lord. 
Thank you, Lord. This reminder is to remind us again, it's time to give thanks. It's time to praise his name. Without that, we have no hope. But we do have hope now, don't we? We have hope in Christ. I'm going to ask the men to join me here this morning as we take up our, our communion service together. If you are just visiting with us today, you're not a member of our church, that's okay. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's what this is all about. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, don't take of the communion service. Just let it pass by. But think about it, would you? Think about the fact that you're letting a beautiful opportunity to know a Savior go by. But as we partake together, let us first be mindful of it's our sin and mindful of it's his mercy and be thankful, people. our heads. Lord, how great is our sin, my sin, our sin, but you are an infinitely greater Savior, and we read about your suffering, uh, we hear about your suffering, but we truly cannot appreciate the extent you suffered and died for us. We thank you for the bread as it reminds us of your body that was broken and we praise you, and we thank you. And may we not take this lightly. In your precious name, amen.